Good morning. Good to see all of you this morning. If you've got your Bible, uh, let's go to the book of Titus again. The specific verses that we're going to be looking at are in Titus chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 11 to 15 together. Titus chapter 2, 11 to 15. And if you don't have a Bible with you or you would like to follow along with us, there are Bibles that are there in the chair racks. And we have people with us each week that are unfamiliar with where to find things in the Bible. So we've got the page number for you so you don't have to struggle. Uh, Titus 2 is found on page 998 of the Bibles that are there in the chair racks in front of you if you need one. In 1986, the first lady, Nancy Reagan launched a campaign that was intended to curb drug abuse among America's youth. The 80s was seeing an explosion in the use of crack cocaine. It was, it was reaching epidemic proportions, and so all sorts of efforts were being made to, to try to curb this. And Nancy Reagan got in on the action by launching a, a campaign to fight against this. And this campaign used a whole series of ads that, that utilized all kinds of celebrities. And there are a bunch of you that are here that probably don't even know who some of these celebrities are because they were celebrities in 1986. I barely know who some of them are because I know some of you think I'm old, but I was seven in 1986, so I'm old to some of you. But we're talking, we're talking people like Brooke Shields, Mr. T, David Hasselhoff, he was the Knight Rider, uh, who else, Clint Eastwood, all sorts of celebrities were used in these ads. And, and the message to America's youth when faced with the potential of being offered these illicit drugs the message that, that America's youth were supposed to receive from this was just three simple words that they were res respond with that many of you probably already know. Those three simple words were, just say no. Just say no. Saying no to drugs was the cool thing to do because Mr. T said it was the cool thing to do. And that strategy is as is, is good as far as it goes. If, if you can use positive peer pressure through the use of celebrities to get younger kids to say no to drugs, then, then that is certainly worth it. But that strategy of just saying no is rather weak if your reasons for saying yes are pretty strong. So, for instance, if you are being pressured to fit in in your school or your neighborhood, or you're being bullied in some way, then yes, it's great that Mr. T told you to say no, but Mr. T isn't here right now. And the people whose approval I desperately want are. Or, if you are in a situation where you don't feel like you have a future anyway, then talking about the, the toll 
that drugs will take on your body kind of doesn't matter. Because if I have no realistically good future, why not do this now? Just say no also doesn't work for those who are already addicted. Our nation's rehabilitation facilities would have a much uh, higher success rate if the answer was as simple as just saying no, as if an addict could say, oh, I did not realize it was that easy. I, I could just say no. But I'm afraid that some of our ideas about Christian spiritual formation are about this deep. When it comes to the things that we are not to do as Christians or the things that we ought to do as Christians, we speak as if it was just a matter of saying no to the things we ought not do and saying yes to the things that we ought to do. And so what we do is our responsibility is to to come to church, to gather for worship, and to make sure that we take good notes. I don't mind if you take good notes. In fact, I kind of like it if you take good notes. But our, we come to church, we hear the Word of God preached, we take notes, we write down the things that we should do, we write down the things that we should not do, and resolve that we will do the things that we should do, and we will not do the things that we should not do. And oh, if it was that easy. Our goals are for spiritual depth, right? I mean, I would think that most of us here want deeply formed Christians. So our goals, our stated goals that we would all agree with, are that we want a level of spiritual depth. And then the means that we want to use to try to generate or create that spiritual depth are means that are shallow. We want Great depth through shallow means. Shallow methods. I don't know about you, but it is hard to say no to deeply rooted patterns of sin in my life. Is it for you? I mean, there are, there are things when we become Christians that we're able to, to stop doing relatively quickly and we kind of feel good about ourselves because we're in a rhythm. But think about sins of the heart. Those are rooted a bit more deeply, are they not? Let's say you're a person, and we don't have anyone like this here, but let's say in other churches there are people who struggle with the sin of being judgmental. Now, that's not a a big outward sin. But have you ever tried to stop being
Oh, I think maybe the batteries are dead. It's blinking red. I don't know what that yeah, means. So. Do you want new batteries or do you want a new mic? I don't care. There you go. <laughs> mic it is. I'll do the mic. So I was at one point amplified. Okay, so I won't repeat the whole thing. <laughs> Let's take it from the top. Page 998. Okay, so what I was saying is the Bible also calls us to, to love. You could write those down in your notes. All right. Was it church today? Love God, all heart, soul, mind, and strength. Check. Love my neighbor as myself. Check. Just got to say yes to that. The problem is your neighbor is not that lovable. So now what are we going to do? It's easy to love people that are easy to love, but there's lots of people who are about as lovable as a porcupine. So, so here's what I'm trying to say. I think sometimes we act like it's going to be easy. And preachers like me preach like it's going to be easy. We just throw the stuff out and say, just, just do this stuff. Say yes to the stuff you should and say no to the stuff you shouldn't and we'll all be happy. Our expectations then are set wrong because we enter into this thinking that this isn't going to be that much of a challenge. We're expecting it to be easy, but it isn't easy. So what do we do when we realize that just say no is a strategy that works for some stuff, but there's a whole bunch of stuff that just say no doesn't quite seem to work for. Well, there are two familiar tools to which we reach. And we love these tools because they're well-worn tools. We know these tools. We can, these tools feel right in our hands. And these are the tools that we use to try to get ourselves and each other to, to say no to what we ought to say no to and yes to what we ought to say yes to. One of those tools that you know very well is fear. We scare people into doing what they ought to do. You realize if you, you, realize if you do that, what's going to happen? And I've heard many a sermon especially when I was a teen and everybody was trying to tell me all the stuff that I was not supposed to do, I cannot tell you how many stories I heard about the kid who wasn't doing what he was supposed to be doing and got into a fiery car accident on the way home. Another tool that we reach for that feels familiar in our hand and so it's something that we know how to use Just say something. 
You got me? Okay. All right. We'll see how long that lasts before I ruin that one. Okay. Where are we? We're, t- we're talking about shame. Fear, shame. Oh, we're on fear? Okay. Yeah, and then we're in shame. Okay. Trying to be serious here. <laughs> talking about important things. Please, please stay with me, okay? We're, we're talking about like life-changing stuff right now, I promise. Okay, so another common tool that we resort to is shame. So we say things to ourselves like, imagine if other people knew what you were like. Or, imagine what Jesus thinks of you right now. He's sitting there up in heaven with his arms crossed, shaking his head disapprovingly. Do you really want to do that to Jesus? Now, of course, there is appropriate fear and guilt. There is an appropriate fear in terms of an awareness of consequences of a life that's lived out of sync with the path that God would lay for us. And there is an appropriate guilt that comes from an awareness of our sins. But listen to this, the Bible does not teach us to leverage fear or shame for our spiritual growth. The Bible does not teach us to do that. And here's the thing, we reach for those tools because those tools do provide some sort of visible results in the short term. You can take your vehicle to the gas pump and there are certain configurations and I don't even know what they are because I don't know anything about cars and I'm glad that they make diesel fuel with a different size so that I can't accidentally put that one into my car. So like most of the things I talk about, I'm out of my depth, but there are some cars that you could put the wrong fuel into and get somewhere. So you're able to, you might be able to move from point A to point B if you don't put premium fuel in that, in that sports car of yours, but you are going to do long-term damage to the engine. And that's where we're at sometimes when we reach for tools like guilt and shame. They may get us to the next stop but they will not get you to the destination. And not only will they fail to get you to the next destination, they will wreak havoc on the engine. So, those motivated by fear will eventually become calloused to that fear and give in. Those who are motivated by shame will eventually lose themselves in despair and give up. Which is why we should have started with the Bible in the first place. As we're trying to figure out what makes us go. And I believe that the Bible provides a different and better answer to deep spiritual formation. 
I mentioned it last week, but it is the gospel that motivates the good life. A life of deep spiritual formation. And I said last week that what we're going to do is go through every verse of this book, but we're going to go through this book thematically rather than sequentially. Rather than just starting at the beginning and working to the end, we're going to group what, this, what the Bible has to say about the good life by topics. And I said that we'd start last week by examining two specific aspects of the gospel that provide a deeper and more formative motivation for the good life. The first one is found in the verses that I had you turn to at the beginning of the message today. Look with me, if you will, at Titus chapter 2 and verse 11. Titus chapter 2 and verse 11. And I would invite you to read these verses with new eyes. Constant problem is that we read expecting what we think we're going to, seeing what we expect to see. So look at it fresh. The Word of God says this in Titus chapter 2, beginning in verse 11, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, training us, that's the grace of God, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Paul says to Titus, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, let no one disregard you. Notice in verse 11, the Apostle Paul writing to this young ministry leader as he's been put on the island of Crete to set in order these brand new Christian communities across the island, Paul starts by saying, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. You have heard the well-worn definition of grace many times. It's simple and there are much more complex ones, but for our purposes this morning, it works just fine. Grace is unmerited or unearned favor. Unmerited or unearned favor. And there is an event that has happened in human history which is the greatest demonstration of God's grace. Because Paul says the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people. He's talking about the appearing of Jesus Christ in space and time. Paul is not saying that grace had not been in existence in God's dealings with humanity up until the appearance of Jesus Christ. We just took all this time to go through the book of Genesis, which is the very first book of the Bible, which deals with the very beginnings, and you can see that God's grace is present from day one. However, 
There has never been such a revelation of grace as was shown in the person of Jesus Christ. God, the Father, sending God the Son into the world to take on human flesh. To live a perfect life. To offer Himself as a perfect sacrifice in the place of sinners like me and sinners like you, and then to demonstrate the power of God in His resurrection from the dead. This is the salvation that is brought into space and time in human history. The Cretan Christians had put their faith in Jesus. They looked back at this historical event, this appearing of God's grace in this unique and special way that brings salvation to all people. That is male, female, Jew, Greek, slave, free. The gospel is for everyone. And it is the solution for everyone because as the preaching in Acts says, there is no other name by which anyone may be saved. So I'll pause here and say that if that is the first time you have heard that good news, then we would invite you right now to receive God's grace. And you say, right here? And I say, yes, because God's grace is God's unmerited, unearned favor. Because God the Father sent God the Son to take on flesh, live a perfect life, die as a sacrifice for our sins, you can be saved. You can receive this experience of grace, this salvation that has been received, that has been demonstrated in history to all people, you can receive it right now by faith. But, this is important, what this Bible passage puts together for us tells us that grace has not completed its task once we have received our initial salvation. And I'm afraid that sometimes we as Christians think of grace as a stage on a rocket. Here's what I mean by that. When the rocket is sent off into space and it's going to break out of our atmosphere and go into orbit, there are these enormous fuel tanks that, that, that provide an enormous amount of thrust that, that shoot that rocket up and is able to pierce out of our atmosphere, and, and get into orbit. And once those enormous tanks of fuel have shot that rocket up and got, they have done their job, those, those big fuel containers fall away. They're no longer needed because once that rocket is in orbit, it is going to be maneuvered by different means. And I think sometimes that we live our lives as if there was a similar case with us when it comes to grace. Grace does the, grace does the heavy lifting in our lives. It, it brings us salvation. It brings us God's 
favor, it gets us saved. But once we've been saved, grace falls away, and now we maneuver ourselves through the Christian life through different means. You may not have actually consciously had that thought, but that's how we act. And we are so thankful for the grace that got us to this point, and we're going to have to figure out how to continue from here. But Amazing Grace, the song, was right. There's a line there that says, "'Tis grace hath brought me safe thus far." Okay, so far so good. And grace will lead me home. So, Paul wanted Titus to help these Cretan believers understand that the same grace that had brought about their salvation was the grace that was going to bring about their transformation. You need to understand that too. The same grace that brought about your salvation is going to be bring about your transformation. Grace is, is able to accomplish the deep spiritual formation of Christians. And it was going to be able to do deep spiritual transformation of these Christians in Crete. Because remember, these are first generation pagans. These are people who are steeped in the Roman imperial cult. People who are steeped in mythology and the idea of what it means to be a good Hellenist. These are people who have been saved but now have to be reformed, rewired, kind of like us. Americans who need to be rewired with new kingdom ideals that are in harmony with the way of Jesus. They needed to learn a new way of being. And so these verses that we've read in verses 11 to 15 are filled with instructions on how to live faithfully as a man or how to live faithfully as a woman or what it looks like to inhabit society now that I'm a member of a kingdom or even what it looks like to live faithfully as a Christian when you're a slave you see what I'm saying here? It's rewiring stuff. But Paul is trying to get Titus to help them reject the old way of being and embrace why a new way of being, not by going from town to town and telling them, giving them the list of things that they shouldn't do and the list of things that they should do and say, just say no to this stuff and just say yes to that stuff, I'll come back in a year and check. You are so deeply enculturated that you don't even know what needs to be fixed. Nor does he motivate them with fear or shame. What Paul does here is, frankly, revolutionary. He motivates them with grace. And so the truth I'd like us to consider this week and next, because it's going to take us two weeks to do it, is this. The good news of God's grace trains us to live the good life. 
the good news, that's the gospel, of God's grace, an element of the gospel, is what trains us to live the good life. Now, notice that the Bible says that it trains us. When Paul's original audience, Titus, and the people that he was speaking to would have heard that Greek word for train, that would have been a word that was familiar to them, a word that would have sparked other kinds of ideas in them. It was a word used by Greek authors such as Plato to describe the ideal formation of Greek Hellenist citizens. And Paul is grabbing that word and repurposing it and saying that up until this point in your lives, the cultural forces have been intending to form a good Greek citizen. But now that you have come to Christ, now that you have become a recipient of this grace that has occurred in this paradigm-shifting event in human history, the incarnation of the Son of God, well, now that grace is going to train you and, if I could use the word, reform you in a new way. But training is not simply a one-time event. Training does not primarily take place in the classroom, which is why for deep spiritual formation to occur, I cannot simply stand up here and tell you what ideals you ought to live by and what ideals you ought not to live by, and you write them down and commit them to memory, and we move forward. Training is a day-by-day, week-by-week, month-by-month, year-by-year, decade-by-decade experience, greater understanding of God's grace which produces in us, over time, a life that is becoming more and more harmonious with the gospel. In other words, it's not microwavable. It takes place over time. And if there is one thing our culture does not like, it is things that take place over time. You win now, or you're fired. Grace trains us to do two things, according to these verses. We'll look at just the first one this week. But the first thing that grace trains us to do is grace trains us to live faithfully in the present. It trains us to live faithfully in the present. Notice verse 14 of the verses that we read. God's intent is that we be a people who are zealous for good works. So we know that that is something that God wants us to do, to live faithfully in the present, pursuing good works. And the gospel trains people by grace, verse 12 says, in this present age. 
So while we're living in the here and now, grace is supposed to have a training effect on us that is producing in us, over time, people who are deeply spiritually formed, people whose lives are characterized by, by being zealous for what's good, good works. And grace helps us to live faithfully in the present in two ways. There are things that it helps us renounce, and there are things that it helps us embrace. Grace trains us first in renouncing an old way of being. The Bible says here in uh, verse 12, it says, it trains us, grace trains us to renounce ungodliness, and worldly passions. So ungodliness is everything that is out of step with the character of God. We are born by nature out of sync with God. We are bearers of His image and so that we, so we cannot help reflect God, but there is this incongruity, this mismatch between our brokenness and the image of God in us, the way we are and the way we ought to be. And not only do we live out of sync with the life that God would have for us, but our hearts are drawn to worldly passions. Worldly passions is is not just the bad things that we aren't supposed to do, although it does include that, but worldly passions is, is deeper than that. Worldly passions is, is talking about you and I at the root level of our affections. Our problem isn't just that we do bad things. Our problem is that we are warped to love that which we ought not love. And the reason you can't just say no to it is because you are deeply in love with it. We don't say no to the things we deeply love. It's very difficult to say no to the things that have just captured the imagination and, uh, of our hearts. But when we get a taste of grace, when we come to understand that there is a God who has shown us, in spite of corruption, in spite of these worldly passions, in spite of the fact that we have rejected His way and gone our own way, when we realize that God loves us enough to show us people like us favor, Well, now that starts to change us at the level of affection, doesn't it? Because now, some of that foundational affection is shaken loose. Now my loves are starting to change. Now, as I experience the grace of God and understand the grace of God to a greater and greater degree, it's not just that I'm that I'm saying no to doing stuff, but I'm being rewired on the inside. That's deep transformation. That's a changing of loves. And the only way for you and I to truly 
renounce, and that word is, is such, a, such a definitive word. It's not a one-time experience, okay? It's a, it's a daily renunciation. But the more I experience God's grace, the more that becomes a reality that I live with, the more able I am to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and say, I disavow this way of life. I disown you, old way. So grace trains us in renouncing an old way of being, and then it trains us in embracing a new way of being. And this new way of being is described in our text as as instead of ungodliness and worldly passions, we're to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. I'm having to move quickly here because I've already burned two microphones. But it's not just the renounce it's it's not just the renunciation of an old way of life. It's the embracing of a new way of being. It is an opening of oneself to grace so that grace does not only get the rocket ship into the stratosphere, but it takes us all the way home. A life that is a new way of being is a daily exercise of grace that helps us say yes to the good, the true, and the beautiful. To say no to the wicked, the false, the ugly. All right, that gives you a lay of the land, what I think is happening in these verses. In some ways, I feel like this passage of Scripture is my life's work. If there was only one thing that you ever understood me say, I might choose this. Because it's that important. My fear, though, is that we do not always see grace as a tool that is quite strong enough. So we sing, "'Tis grace hath brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home." But many of us ask grace to drop us off about here, and we'll take it the rest of the way. Thank you. So if you and I were to sing that song honestly, it might go like this. Tis grace hath brought me safe thus far, but effort will lead me home. Now there's a place for effort. It's all through Titus. He uses the language of pursuit and devotion. Or you might sing the song, Tis grace hath brought me safe thus far, but fear will lead me home. Tis grace hath brought me safe thus far, but shame will lead me home. 
That's what we're doing. You see, when you, when you put it that starkly, it makes the grace ugly, doesn't it? Our problem, I think, sometimes is that grace feels dangerous. It's good for us in limited quantities. You can go to church and get your prescription refilled. But you're not getting any extra pills if you run out early. I think our problem is not that we might have too much grace. I think we might have too little. And when you look at it this way, it's no wonder that spiritual formation isn't happening the way we want. We are afraid to let grace accomplish its work. And so we reach for those familiar tools that have helped our parents, and their parents, and our forefathers. How does grace, the unearned favor of God that we possess, train us day in and day out to say no to what we ought to say no to and yes to what we ought to say yes to? Well, I've already hinted at it, more than hinted at it. But I want to read for you a somewhat extended quote so that you recognize that Matt wasn't sitting in his office this week and deciding to make some stuff up. There are other Christians who have thought this. There's a Scottish pastor named Thomas Chalmers, who I've mentioned to you before. But he preached a foundational sermon in my life, not to me, he said I'm not that old. (laughs) He didn't even know about Nancy Reagan's thing. He died before that. Early 1800s. But Thomas Chalmers preached a sermon called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. You've probably heard me mention it before if you've been around for any length of time. You can Google later The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. Read the whole thing this afternoon. It's not long. But but it's a sermon that says, basically, if he had known about Nancy Reagan's campaign, it's a sermon that's based around the fact that just say no doesn't work. The only way you will root out these old affections, these old loves, is if they are expelled by, that's where that word expulsive comes, it will, those will only be rooted out if they are expelled by a greater affection. Now, Listen, listen to this quote. I'm going to have it up, up, up on the screen, and I'll, I'll stop a couple times to make a couple notes about it. It's, it's a little bit clunky to read because it was written a while ago, but stay with it. I think you will be rewarded if you stick with it. Here's something that Thomas Chalmers says in this sermon. He says this, The object of the gospel is both to pacify 
the sinner's conscience and to purify his heart. Pause. That's what the Bible says. That's what we read. Okay, the gospel gives us this initial work of salvation where our consciences are cleared because Christ has done a work for us and we no longer need fear, judgment, or death. We've been saved. But Chalmers, echoing what the Bible says, says that the object of the gospel is both to pacify the sinner's conscience and to purify his heart. That stage, that grace stage of the rocket doesn't fall off the ship ever. So we go on to say, the best way of casting out an impure affection is to admit a pure one. And by the love of what is good, to expel the love of what is evil. Okay? He goes on to say, he's pressing into this because we're sometimes afraid of grace. He says, thus it is that the freer the gospel, the more sanctifying is the gospel. That is, the more freely we preach grace, the more it sanctifies, the more it transforms us into the image of Christ. And the more it is received as a doctrine of grace, the more it will be felt as a doctrine according to godliness. Salvation by grace, salvation by free grace, salvation not of works, but according to the mercy of God, salvation on such a footing is not more indispensable to the deliverance of our persons from the hand of justice than it is the deliverance of our hearts from the chill and the weight of ungodliness. Do you see what he's saying here? When he uses this language of being indispensable, he's saying, We need the gospel and we need grace not just to deliver us from the justice, the the just punishment of God that we have deserved because of our sin. We need it not just for that, but we need it for the deliverance of our hearts from the weight of ungodliness. Because we think ungodliness is going to make us happy when it actually weighs us down. Now, My time is gone, so I'm going to have to land the plane here. This is difficult for us. But I think sometimes we are afraid. Maybe I'll just speak for myself. Maybe sometimes I'm afraid to receive God's love the way he wants me to receive it. Let me cross the word maybe out of that. It's not maybe. I am. I am afraid for grace to be that good. Because there's that little part of me that says, but what if that's not totally true? And if I could just leave you with one thing this morning as we're walking out of here, one thing I have to fight to believe. So I said at the beginning, preachers say, ah, do this stuff like they're doing it. Okay. But here's, here's the thing I want you to walk out with as you're, as you're thinking about grace, unearned favor, 
you need to walk out recognizing and believing that you are loved so much more than you ever dreamed possible. And you may be thinking, well, there's an exception because of me. No, there's not. And you may be thinking, oh, that's dangerous. Yeah. Yeah, what would happen if we really believed that? I bet we'd be deeply transformed. It is the good news of the grace of God that's going to lead us into the good life we all want. So let's fight for faith, to believe that that's true. Lord, help us. We pray the prayer of the New Testament. We believe, help thou our unbelief. Help us to believe that the grace that has brought us safe this far is indeed not only sufficient, but the only means of getting home. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.